Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, wormhole explorers, and congratulations on your superb selection of podcasts today. You've all done really well for yourselves, and I've got to say that I'm super impressed with you all. Nice work. And it's no coincidence that here today at Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson, we're joined by our guru of all things futuristic and progressive. Welcome, Matthew Dickerson. What's been happening this week, Matt? Gee, thanks, James. It is nice to flatter people for being intelligent enough to come and tune into this. Is there a little bit of self-serving there? <laughs> not at all, not at all. What the heck? That's all marketing. It's all marketing, that's right. Now, this week I had the chance to go and have a tour of a wind farm. Now, I've been to a few wind farms in the past, and I'm always fascinated by wind farms, and I actually find it quite I actually think they're quite majestic. Some people will disagree with me. What do you call a group of wind turbines? Is it a herd of wind turbines? You're on a wind farm. Is it a herd or is it a flock of, of wind turbines? Well, we need to come up with something with Or windmills if you're Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Windmills, as he calls them. Uh, you need to come up with something that is related to wind maybe out there. So maybe a, a, blow. a wisp. A blow? A blow? Yeah. It probably blows better. A wisp sounds a bit like it's there's soft. not enough energy in there. A blow sounds like more energy. So how about a blow of wind turbines? A zephyr of... <laughs> Of uh, wind turbines, right. Okay. Oh, no, so that's it. From now on, anyone out there, I want to hear it back from somewhere. <laughs> so I went down and I saw the blow or the zephyr of wind turbines. <laughs> and a couple of things I found fascinating and, and things change. Each time I go down and look at them, you pick up something new. But I actually do find it nice or quite fascinating standing below them and just seeing the blade and, and just hearing the blade. You hear more wind than the blade. People complain about the noise of the turbines. Mm. But Surprise, surprise. The scaremongers complain about that. That's yeah, right. right. Okay. Yep. Surprisingly enough, they're in windy places. Yeah, so yeah. when you stand near wind turbines, you mainly hear the wind because that's <laughs> why they put them there in the first place. But you do sometimes, right underneath them, you can stand there and you just hear that whoosh, whoosh of the turbine. About 12 revolutions per minute they're going at. So they're not spinning that fast. But I just find them fascinating and quite majestic standing there and looking at them, especially up close. I just find the technology and them fascinating. But it actually gets more interesting that we actually sat down in the side office, apart from standing around with the wind turbines looking at those, in the side office. And now, of course, the whole regulated energy market is absolutely fascinating. So the price updates for how much they're getting paid for their electricity every five minutes. So you're watching a screen oh, wow. and you're seeing how much energy is being produced and how many turbines. This particular farm we had was a 113.2 megawatt wind farm, 33 wind turbines there. So by today's standards, it's actually a little bit smaller than some of the wind turbines that are out there. These Each turbine was only a 3.43 megawatt generator and some of them now are getting up to five and six gen- megawatt generators, for example. But when you're watching it, you're seeing that price change. And the first thing I saw when I came in was the price jumped by about $20. And I went, oh, gee, that seems like a pretty big jump. And they went, no, 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 no the price can go to $15,000 or negative $2,000, for example. (laughs) And then you say, hold on, negative $2,000. So you're going to pay the grid money. To pump your electricity out of it. (laughs) That's right. And and that kind of doesn't sound right. Why am I putting all this infrastructure in the ground, putting wind turbines up to pay someone to take the electricity off my hands? Now, of course, they're trying to control supply and demand. So when it's negative, you might say, how about we don't produce electricity for the Mm. next little bit? Or so much we're seeing now where you've got some of the form of storage, whether it be pumped hydro, whether it be batteries. So when it's in the negative, you might decide not to pump it into the grid. You might decide to put that electricity into a storage component that you have associated with that wind farm. And then when it's obviously high, you might pump that back into the grid. But all of that's going on. 
you and I might think it's quite simple. You put some wind turbines up, they spin, they generate electricity, uses lenses law, that's all great, and then it's out in the grid and we turn lights on and everything works fantastically. But there are people in these organisations now that are almost like share traders that are watching that five-minute price, that fluctuate of that five-minute price, and they're changing what they're doing with the whole wind farm dependent yeah. upon that five-minute price. Wow. We wouldn't have a toilet break, would you? I'm just going to go to the toilet, <laughs> sure come back five minutes later, oh, no, come look at that. Get chatting with someone while you're in the corridor. Oh, no, it's, it's every, you'd, you'd have your, your alarm when you watch every five minutes with news just <laughs> to see the next price that jumps up. But it is all quite fascinating and just mm. all the technology, the individual turbines to see where the wind speed, the wind direction, and it's amazing how much over a fairly small area, how much the wind direction and wind speed changes across that. It typically needs around about four metres per second wind speed to actually generate some power. They get up to, say, 25 metres per second, then they want to shut them down. But they do that feathering the blades, just like a... And the rotor can actually swivel as well on top of the mast, is that right? It does, but it, it's even more interesting that they do turn around to chase the wind, just like the good old-fashioned windmill that had the tail out the back that you would actually get to turn around. But if they keep turning around to the point where it turns 720 degrees, and we're looking at some of the SCADA information on this particular group of turbines, and it actually had a little indicator there that if it got to 720 degrees, it stops operation temporarily and unwind itself. Oh. Because there actually are cables that are joined from the generator down to yeah, the base. Of and so if yeah, they get the too twisted, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it actually does oh, an wow. unwinding process. So it can do two revolutions, 720 degrees, before yeah. it says, hold on, that's enough now, I better unwind that's myself amazing. and then continue operation. And of course, the, the blades feather. I did wonder when they do, say, shut them down for maintenance or when they do try and keep them at that 12 revolutions per minute whether that was done through some magnetic braking or some feathering of the blades. And, of course, they do do it with feathering the blades. So they'll change the pitch of those blades. And if they do go into maintenance mode and they turn those blades to effectively 90 degrees, they said just the amount of drag with the magnets in the generator, the blades will probably do one to two revolutions before they'll stop. So yeah, if right. they're left to their own free spinning without wind driving them, obviously you feather those blades to 90, then that's the amount of momentum that's the in momentum, there. Yeah only gives them about one or two revolutions before that's it from the magnetic drag. So, yeah, wow. yeah it is quite fascinating. So, And, of course, I posted some pictures on social media and, of course, everyone came out and told me all the problems with wind turbines <laughs> oh. and what's going to happen in 25 to 40 years' time when they have to be… When the technology is better. That's right. right. Yeah, exactly, when they've got to be decommissioned and pulled down. But the reality is they're running 33 kV lines under the ground to back to the substation they've got there. They've got 85-metre towers. They've got about three to four metres depth of concrete underneath each turbine. I just don't see companies investing all that money and in 25 years' time saying... Turning their back on it. That's right. Let's just rip all that out or let's forget about it. How about we keep generating electricity? How about we maybe change the gearbox if that's what we've got to do or we put new generators in there that are more efficient or whatever. I think they're going to probably leave that infrastructure Mm. that's in the ground and then work out ways to keep using the head and the, the... propellers, the turbines, mm. and keep using that in a more efficient way. Or keep the ones that are there, if they're, they're still working, keep them there and keep generating electricity. Now, did they ask you if you wanted to go up the top and climb up to the... Well, no, they didn't ask me. I asked them <laughs> if I could go, <laughs> could up, the go up the top. Now, just a couple of issues I had with that one. I don't have a working with heights certificate. And oh. I said, how do I get one of those? And there's a three-day training course to get that. Wow. The other minor problem is when I step into the base of the turbine... There's a 33kV substation on one side or transformer on one side and a little 6kV transformer on the other side. If I 
bumped or accidentally touch one of those and shut that down, that'd be a bit of a problem because then yeah, that stops electricity being generated. Yeah. So you've got to go through another training program to be able to make sure you don't touch those controls. Huh. So there's a few steps to go through and it's operational. So this was all operational. I've actually been lucky enough to be inside some of those towers in a non-operational wind farm, but this one's fully operational. So they wouldn't let me go up there basically was the bottom well, line from all that. So as much as I would have loved to have, and especially up at the gearbox, that would have been uh, quite interesting being up there, but no, they wouldn't let me do it. I sorry. get vertigo just thinking about that sort of height, <laughs> so I'm not going to go any further with that. Yeah, fair enough. All right, our first story has caught a couple of people off guard, including Elon Musk. We've talked in the past about how the current Australian EV market has been, well, hardly inspiring, but Elon Musk has decided to release his new Tesla SUV model right within our shores, and the first signs suggest that this is going to go off like a frog in a sock. Perhaps, Matt, it may even become the most popular EV in the country, perhaps. That's my big prediction, James. It's probably a pretty safe prediction. The Model Y, I actually think by the end of 2022, even though it's only going to be on the market for about six months in this year, I think it'll be the number one selling car for this year. Number one selling EV, sorry, for this year. So the Model 3 was incredibly popular. About 12,000 were sold last year. It outsold the number two EV to a factor of eight. So it was pretty popular. Now, to do EVs. that, it's not only got to be high performance, but it's also got to be super cheap. Well, I don't think about super cheap, super value, uh, well, for, value money. for money. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Yeah, and sorry. I think the Model 3 is value for money. I think the Model Y is definitely value for money. In fact, people are quite surprised because the first Teslas that came out, the Tesla Roadster, for example, that came out was several hundred thousand dollars. Mm. So people just expect the Tesla brand name to be expensive. expensive. Yeah. But then when they start looking at a variety of EVs and they look at the base model Y or 3, they go, oh, it's actually not that expensive in relative terms. I'm saying it's mm. not your little town runaround that you might just pay 20 or 30 grand for, but you're talking about 60-odd grand for a base model 3, for example. Mm. So, so the model Y is what a lot of people have been waiting for because – Everyone wants an SUV now for some reason. I don't know why. You go past schools where kids are being picked up at the end of the day and you see exactly. a lineup of SUVs. It's a family car. Yeah, it is. It seems to be. So no longer is a sedan good enough. So the Model 3 and the Model Y have both got the same basic architecture. The wheelbase, the chassis, if you like, is the same. But the lid on top for the Model 3 is a sedan. The lid on top for Model Y is an SUV. And just on some early reports, I received an email from Tesla to say, hey, the Model Y is now available. Great. And I shot that to a few mates because I knew a few people who were interested in it. And one of them ordered it that day. He, as soon as he got it, he oh, said, really? thanks very much. Get in there and order Bang. it. And his just delivery date was August this year. Oh, really? I had another friend who wasted days. He took about three or four days before he then finally ordered it. He just, <laughs> wasted days. And, and he sent me an email and said, I just ordered it. And it told me a March time frame for delivery. Oh, wow. Now, I imagine they're not just bringing five or ten in the country. I imagine no. they're bringing some quantity in the country. And so within a few days, to go from an August delivery to a March delivery means I think it was pretty popular. I actually think there were a few people with Model 3 orders who probably cancelled those as well and went to the Model Y. They probably mm. ordered the Model 3 going, well, I'll get in there and get one and the Model Y will come out at some stage in the future. And so that's a bit of an indication, I suppose, about the popularity of it. Mm. It's also gotten to the point where Elon Musk has actually tweeted to say that gee, we've been caught off guard a little bit. We're trying to accelerate right-hand drive production, which obviously is Australia. There's a few Mm. other countries that are right-hand drive as well. But obviously that's caught him a bit off guard in terms of how much this is going to be influenced in the Australian market. So that's good if they ramp up production, obviously. So that's, that's absolutely fantastic. And so, again, with 
lots of car brands, lots of manufacturing out there. There have been some problems with COVID-19, even some problems in the Shanghai factory. That's where the Australian cars were built over in the Shanghai factory. But I think a lot of those will be better as time goes on. But I also think there's another couple of little things and it doesn't take much. I, I love the idea of modelling. I love, you know, we've talked about supercomputers before mm. and some of those used in some incredible modelling, but just some little tweak in the financial services sector, you wonder how much will that have an influence? And I think there's probably three things that are going to really make next year be the, the year of the EV finally in Australia. Uh. We talked about it briefly, the FBT exemption, the federal government's going to bring in from the 1st of July. So straight away you go, well, that's good. That might save people in a business scenario, a few thousand dollars a year. Then you've got the $3,000 rebate that you get in New South Wales. Now, other states are doing something similar. Stamp duty exemption in New South Wales. And again, these all have cutoffs. So for example, the stamp duty exemption, if you want to get your stamp duty back, the stamp duty exemption was $78,000. So if you, that's in New South Wales. If you get an EV below seventy eight grand, then you get your stamp duty back. That's great. The rebate is for an EV below $68,750, a different amount, which is probably a bit confusing for people. And then the FPT exemption, if you buy a car below $84,916. So there's a few different amounts there. But if you're buying that car around that mid-60s, you're going to get all those back, stamp duty, rebate, and then FPT, suddenly you go, hold on, with the price of petrol the way it is, and these few things here, these few triggers, and they start making you think about it, then I think people are going to go, right, now's the time to go and get one. So Mm. 1.95% in 2021, that'll go up in 2022, but in 2023, once all these things start to come into effect and we get better supply... I think 2023, here I am, James, predicting it now. There it is. You heard it, The year of the EV for Australia, which Mm. means we're a long way behind the rest of the world still, but the year of the EV for Australia. Encouraging signs nevertheless. We've got a long way to catch up. Norway, 86.2% last year. Uh, Sweden, 45%. Netherlands, 29.8%. Germany, 26%. We've got a long way to go to catch up to some of Mm. those countries. Mm. But, you know, maybe early days and the future is an encouraging place. It is indeed. Maps have been looking for that new thing to keep punters happy. And you've got to admit, for a map website that can already give you, well, pretty much the directions and travel time to any obscure dot on the globe that you choose to name, finding something new and relevant is going to be tricky at the very least. But it looks like Google Maps are going to start showing us, get this folks, where to find our clean air. Probably one for the city slickers, isn't it, Matt? I think it is one for the city slickers, but it's also something that's relevant when bushfires, or as they call them in the US, wildfires start, then people are obviously impacted by that smoke and they want to try and find where the clean air is. But yeah, I think if you want to go out for a hike or a bike ride and you're looking at different areas you might go to, oh, look, there's some clean air over there, I'll go there. And they have this thing called an air quality layer. Now, at the moment, you only see it in the US, but obviously things start sometimes in the US and they might eventually come to places like Australia. So if you're in the US, you can actually look at that air quality index right now, which can be overlaid over to your standard map on Google Maps. So again, all those things you mentioned, you can get travel times, you can get a whole range of different bits of information, but the air quality index, I think that's fascinating. Now, they use some government data, so the EPA in the US publishes certain amounts of data, but you probably think that's going to be over a fairly large scale, which it is. But then you've got companies, and there's one called Purple Air, and they have these hyper-local sensors so that they're down at street level 
on a regular basis, again in fairly highly congested cities, to give you indications or measurements of the air quality at those measurements that sometimes yeah, might wow. be just every block or every few blocks in a, in a game, a highly densely or highly populated city. So you get a pretty good indication of how good the air quality is. You might look at that and say, I want to go for a bike ride, I want to go for a run, and uh, oh, if I go down that street, gee, the air quality index is a lot worse than if I go down these streets over here, I think I'll go this way. So that's the sort of information we're getting now. Which well, I can remember 30 years ago uh, when I was living in Sydney and, and say – Walking home from uni, and I used to walk down Cleveland Street sometimes. If I feel, felt, you know, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, life be in it, <laughs> I, I often would catch public transport. But sometimes, you know, I'd feel a bit uh, energetic and decide to walk home. And and some days your nostrils would burn. Yeah. Uh, and I reckon that uh, this sort of information might have been very useful. I would have definitely used it. The stuff you're sniffing as you walked along, did they have any planet as well? The glue or something that you had? <laughs> no, I oh, you didn't have you. to worry about any of that. You were just getting all those wacky drugs that coming out of people's exhaust pipes. Yeah, and probably back in those days, there was probably lead in the petrol too, so oh, it was probably in the mix there yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right, yeah, I actually do notice that. Come in. Yeah, I notice when I'm out riding my bike that if you do go on a road that's a bit busy or cars go past and sometimes some of those older diesels, you, you do get a bit of a mm. mouthful of those and you cough and sputter and you really notice it. So having that fresh air, I think, absolutely fantastic and again the the way they measure it is relatively simple so for example purple air just uses a laser inside the sensor and it just shines a laser from one side to another and then detects how much of that laser gets through and then measures how much is in the air inside this little sensor between one side and the other so it's only over a small distance but it just picks up particles in the air and obviously they refract and that gives you an indication of the pollution and other parts in the air and then they report that back and next thing you know you've got this almost real-time yeah, measurement wow. of pollution measurement of what's in the air across this whole small spectrum to really give you an indication so yeah keep an eye out for that not sure how long before it'll be in australia but certainly in the u.s it's right now you can actually see that air quality index very cool indeed So much wasted plastic in the world, Matt. So much wasted plastic and the pile just seems to grow and grow and grow by the hour. Clearly, recycling strategies only go so far if we only could reduce this global cancer. But Matt, surely any cleanup strategy would drain a phenomenal amount of energy and cost an absolute mozza. Am I right? Well, you could be right in normal logical times, but people are looking for solutions. So it might actually be the opposite of that. What? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How could this be? <laughs> Plastic can be energy. There's oh, an, an Aussie company that's trying to go through a process and get approvals from the Australian government to do a, or carry out a process called plasma gasification. And then you can turn previously unrecyclable plastic into a gas capable of basically turning gas turbines and turning steam turbines, basically turning it into electricity. Yeah, well, so like one of the, the big ones is uh, like the, 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 I understand the plastic lids that come on a lot of milk bottles and whatnot and and uh, fruit juice bottles and those, that sort of plastic is very difficult to recycle. I can imagine yeah. that tons and tons and tons of these things that are generated all the time. That um, Well, hundreds and thousands of tons, this company says, in Australia is produced each year yeah, and we're great. trying to get better at that. We're trying to use plastic less, just even mm. You go through a supermarket and you've got to pay for your shopping bags now, so people tend to not get them. They might bring their recyclable bags, paper, cloth, whatever bags with them, so that's always a good sign. But still, there are going to be things we're going to use plastic for. So as much as we can say, stop using plastic, everyone, Mm. it's not really practical to do that 
in a heartbeat. So in the meantime, let's see if there's something else we can do with it rather than filling landfill, for example, rather than dumping in the ocean, which tends to happen a little bit as well, then maybe turning it into some energy. Now, it's happening overseas, and so often in Australia we do copy things that happen overseas, so it should be fairly easy, you would think, to get some approvals from the Australian government. So in Europe, in America, this sort of waste to energy is already happening, and those plants are running, and those plants seem to be relatively good. Obviously, there's still some output from it. There's still going to be some burning process, so there's still some output. But again, it's better than burying all that plastic. And as a short to medium-term solution until we go fully over to renewables, then this is not a bad thing to get rid of some of those waste products. Mm, awesome. Uh, just um, and, and exciting that, that one of these uh, major issues, and it is a, a major issue in, in the world today, is what to do with our plastics. And, yeah. uh, and great to see things happen. It's scam alert time again, folks, and there's a fake message, this time masquerading as Medicare, and it's been more successful at catching out as Aussies than we prefer to say, of course. But, Matt, what is the story behind this particular scam? Services Australia has had to come out with a warning to say, if you get a text from Medicare, there's a pretty good chance it's not from Medicare. Mm. And it's an interesting one. So people are receiving messages and it says, you've been in close contact with someone who has contracted Omicron. You must order a free PCR test kit. And you say, oh, okay, it's free. And, well, I must have come in close contact, so I better do the right thing here. I'll click on the link to order my free... Omicron PCR test kit. And of course, it'll then start asking you some details and you'll put some information in. You might even be asked for a credit card number because you've just got to pay for the postage. It's free, but you just mm. might pay for the postage or it might just be after your details so they can steal your identity. And you put all that in and you wait and you wait and you wait and no free PCR test kit turns up. How can this be? <laughs> and unfortunately, Goodness it's me. just a complete scam. Now, Again. when you do click on the link, you go to the Medicare site. At least you think you go to the Medicare site because it's pretty easy for these scammers now to replicate a site that looks pretty much exactly the same as the site. They can take some screenshots of the original site. They can copy the wording. They can Mm. even get the English correct rather than trying to translate something and make a few mistakes in the English because they just copy exactly what's on the Medicare site and just Mm. add some details where you put some of your details in. Medicare or Services Australia have come out and they said, we're not going to send you an SMS like this. We're not going to ask you to click on links or attachments except one that might go to our website, for example. But again, it will be the website that looks like the Medicare website, (laughs) not one that's a bunch of letters and numbers that looks nothing like Medicare. And you click on that and go, gee, that's funny that they don't have, say, medicare.gov.au in the domain name of that. Gee, I wonder why they're using this bunch of random characters and numbers. The other one that is a real trap to be on the lookout for is sometimes they'll think, gee, I reckon some of these people are onto us. So we'll put medicare.gov.au somewhere in the domain name, but it might be, for example, random.com. So if you put medicare.gov.au.random.com, then people go, oh, I saw Medicare in the domain name, so it must have been legitimate. So you're really looking, when you look at that and you see it in there, looking for the last part of the domain name before the first forward slash, that's what you're looking for. So when you see random.com forward slash something, you go, okay, the random.com is the domain name, the other part is just a subdomain that you could make up anything for. So it seems that whenever we come up with a way of giving people a tip off that you know, this is what the, the bad guys are doing, the bad guys go and find another way around that that's to right. just hone their skills a little bit better. That's right. Uh, it, it's an iterative, it's, it's iterative an, process, isn't it, where it is. 
we do something to say this is what's happening now and they go just a little bit ahead yeah. but and it's working for them 205 million dollars so far this year from the 1st of January to the 1st of May that's it's been that's reported. only four months that's exactly right and that's what's been reported to scam watch and yeah. again as we've oh. joked before we don't know how much is unreported because it's unreported so oh. that's what's been reported so that's quite scary and text messages in terms of the scams using text messages they've gone up 54% year on year so they're now more common than phone calls and it makes sense because it's much quicker for them to have a computer generate text messages and go out. Now, some of the phone calls are obviously computer generated as well, mm. but that takes a bit more time and a bit more effort. Text messages, much easier to send them out. And you can also make them come from a name. So you don't have to send a number. When you make a phone call, they'll spoof a phone number, but it's still a phone number. But with text messages, you can actually just have it come from Medicare, say. Mm. So you see a message from Medicare that says you need to go and get your free PCR test, well, that all sounds quite legitimate. Yeah. I'll click on that link and away I go. But yeah, you just have to be so alert, so aware of all these scams out there to the point where you do tend to ignore legitimate messages because you just think, oh, it could be a scam. I'm not touching it. I'm not going yeah. to do it. Oh, dear, our brave new world. Well, here's a bit of good news from the brave new world. Robotic surgery has become somewhat of a commonality around the world these days. With this technology, a surgeon in LA can operate on a patient in Sydney and vice versa. And folks, research suggests that it's not only safer than conventional methods of surgery, but it also improves patient recovery time by 20%. Matt, this is astounding. What's the story here? It is great. And when we say robotic surgery, just to not scare people too much, we aren't talking about some... Some guy who looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, or C-3PO, I was yeah, thinking right. of, coming, okay, right, coming in better. Yeah, <laughs> and going, right, let's just go and start slicing <laughs> and dicing this human up here, and then something comes out and, you know, I compute something <laughs> here, and whoops, sorry about that. So most of the robotic surgery, when we talk about that, is still controlled by a human, whether that be thousands of kilometres away or whether they be a metre away, mm. but the human can then use cameras and 3D imagery in a screen or on a screen in front of the surgeon while the actual patient might be right there in front of them. But rather than open up someone completely, cutting through lots of muscle, lots of tissue to go in and do what they would now call open surgery, they now do it through keyholes, minimal invasive surgery because they can get the tools inside the person yeah. and still see what they're doing. It's amazing. And you talk about the 3D imagery. So, you know, one of the problems is um, when you're probably around inside someone's belly there that, you know, flipping the body so you can get a better angle there. The great thing about the, the CGI and the 3D imagery with the cameras and whatnot is you can flip it on the screen to see whatever angle you want. You That's can right. even go within if you need to and, and work out depth and, and all that sort of stuff. Oh, and, and see if there's just something resting against there, if there's a nerve just yeah. against the other side there. If I cut too deep there, that'll touch a nerve there. So absolutely right. They are using robots to be more accurate, to give them more information. And that all sounds great, but finally there's been a study to see whether or not it actually gives better outcomes to patients. It sounds like it does, mm. and it sounds like it's better to have a small little cut on my body rather than a big slice because you think, well, surely that's going to be better to heal. Yeah. But when they started to crunch some of the data, they've done a study now across nine UK hospitals. They had 338 patients they did essentially the same operation with 
some robotic, some non-robotic, and wanted to see what the outcomes and how that all fared. So the first thing they found was the improved patient recovery time by 20%. So on average, in this particular surgery, it was a metastatic bladder cancer that they were working on. In that particular group, when they found the people that were operated on with a robot, they were finding that they stayed in hospital on average about eight days. The people that hadn't had the robotic assistance were in hospital for an average of 10 days. Now, it's not thousands of patients, but it's a reasonable number that gives you sort of an indication. Readmittance to the hospital is another indicator to see Mm -hmm. whether or not they had some complications post-surgery. So within 90 days of surgery, then the people that had robot assistance, 21% of those people came back into the hospital. 32% came back in for people that had a normal traditional form of surgery. So those sort of things obviously give you an indication that this is going down the right path. The other one was the reduction in the prevalence of blood clots, and they found a 77% improvement there. Oh, wow. And again, that probably makes sense because you're just cutting through less tissue. You're cutting less of the body, so there's less of it to heal. There's less chance of that blood clot. So all of these things make sense, and people do trust exactly what's happening with robotic surgery. I had a friend of mine who had prostate cancer recently, had his prostate out, and he was actually quite proudly telling me that he was having a robot operation, a robot version of the <laughs> operation, which, again, he had a huge amount of confidence in that. He actually felt more confidence in the surgery that was about to occur yeah. because he knew there was going to be robot-assisted rather than a surgeon going in and you know, making a, a, a bigger operation out of it than necessary. So, yeah, it is quite fascinating. I can see this getting better and better as the technology develops further and further. And as surgeons, as they come through the ranks, grow up, as in not grow up from a kid, but grow up in their surgery life with this sort of robotic technology as part of their normal course rather than learning it afterwards. Mm. Yeah, and uh, certainly no C-3PO's um, <laughs> tinkering around inside Not yet, anyway, not yet. <laughs> Now, if conspiracy theorists had their own way, the scientists at the Large Hadron Particle Collider below CERN in the Swiss Alps would have ended the world way back in 2012 with their experiment that simulated the Big Bang. As a globally available scientific tool, this enormous toy has been at the forefront of all the spectacular things happening in the world of physics over the past decade or so. More about that shortly. But Matt, it seems that this super particle accelerator is up for some renovations and physicists have got quite a bit to be excited about. So James, the world may have ended in 2012 and we may be in a oh. simulation right now. Right. Yeah. You're playing with my head here. Yeah, We're sorry. Just in the matrix. <laughs> so, the la- and I actually say yeah, Hadron Collider. Is that a black cat walking past you that just glitched? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? Uh, so, you say Hadron, I say Hadron. Is oh, that- yeah. Yeah, look. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, tomato, tomato. Maybe it's the bogan in me that's a hadron, large <laughs> hadron collider. So you're right. The hadron collider, large hadron collider, has been down actually for three years. It only started up, as you say, 2010, 2012 mm. was running. Got 2018, they went, okay, we better shut it down now. We've done enough experimentation, and we've got detectors that are much better. Let's sort of fuel those in. Yeah, three time years. Some renovation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Three years. But this thing is uh, what? It's more than a hundred meters underground. It's, um, it's something between one hundred and one hundred and fifty or two hundred meters underground or whatever. Yeah, it's not just a simple little tool that you just you know, say, oh, "We'll just open it up and do a little quick you know, modification." There. And, and it's enormous. It's like twenty-seven uh, kilometers in diameter, too. So effectively, you've got yeah this twenty-seven kilometer diameter 
device. You've got Tunnel, way underground. Yeah. And so what they've been doing for the last three years is effectively saying the detectors that we've had there are now, or the technology is now progressed to the point where we can get better detectors. So when we mm. smash those various elements together, then the bits that come off those, if we've got detectors that are better, then we can pick up more bits, which is fantastic. Mm. So that's why scientists are pretty excited. Obviously, when they were first doing it, say, a decade ago, they were really trying to find um, Higgs was the, was the big thing. Higgs boson, know. yeah. Yeah, and so that was something that they went, okay, that does exist. Great, we can now prove that. But hold on, it still doesn't explain everything. And there's a whole well, bunch of questions. That's the thing about science, though. The more you dig, the more answers you get, the more questions you should be right, uh, creating. That's yeah. right. And that whole standard model that's been kind of the standard model for yeah. some time, the discovery of Higgs and the proof of that then says, well, hold on, not everything works now in the standard model. There are some questions that we've got yeah. to answer. Hence, the upgrade of this, and this upgrade is only a short-term upgrade because they plan on shutting down the Large Hadron Collider again in 2025 for another couple of years <laughs> for more upgrades to make it better again. So yeah. they're still developing that, even though we think this is an incredible piece of technology and we're finding out lots about the universe, about the background, about what makes up the universe, why does a particle have mass? I mean, these are pretty big questions yeah. there. Yeah, that's right. So trying to get to the bottom of all those and then having this device that they've got to shut down for years at a time. But anyway, it's up and running now. More discoveries happening, more excitement amongst the scientific community. Get excited for three years and wait another couple of years while they shut it down again. <laughs> of course, a lot of these experiments um, that they're doing go over a lot of people's heads. But, the, yeah, as we say, the, the, the more answers we find. Like, what creates an attraction? What creates an electric field? What creates a magnetic field? And what creates a gravitational field? These attractions between particles, it's all super-duper interesting when That's you dig right. into it. And when you talk about those forces, you know, the weak forces and the strong yeah, forces, strong. Yep. some of those, and it's all well and good for us to say that, but... Why? Yeah, why did that's what, that's what the real question, it? isn't it? Yeah, it's all well and good to go into a physics class and learn that okay, here's a certain attraction, here's a, attraction between masses that's yeah. uh, that's uh, proportional to the square of the distance between those two masses from uh, memory. Newton's but gravitational law. Yeah, that's right. Much. But that's great. But why? And that's the stuff that really gets quite difficult to work out. And and why and how and who knows all those answers. But this is where we get a little bit closer every time. I think this next story is going to make some people a little bit nervous. A Google engineer has voiced their concern about an AI tech known as Lambda. And it has, wait for it, become sentient. Matt, this is the plotline for how many dystopic science fiction movies in the past and probably requires some dramatic music playing in the background. We'll leave that for the editing stage. Uh, a computerised tech with sentience. That's a major turning point. It is, if it... Is actually true. If it is actually true, yes. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, okay. I just want to build it up. All that's right. right. Good, good. No, no. <laughs> and interestingly enough, mysteriously, this particular software engineer that works for Google is now on paid administrative leave. Now, oh. it could be for one of two reasons. <laughs> one, they think he's completely crazy. So they yeah. said, you better stop working for us for a little while and just take a bit of rest just, at home. Rest. You've been working very hard lately. That's right. <laughs> Google have said that he's violated some confidentiality which is why he just needs to have a little rest on the sideline for a little Conspiracy bit. Conspiracy theorists are going to uh, That's right. Now, it's right. Let's go back to 1950 when Alan Turing said that the Turing test, which used to be called the imitation game, was the way you could actually see whether or not a computer could have 
thoughts. You know, and people talk about this a lot in terms of AI. And so mm. the the Turing test was really if you had a human in one room and a computer in another room and you couldn't see them and you could write a text message so that you couldn't hear their voices and you get answers back and you couldn't tell the difference yeah, between the computer and the human, then that was said to have passed the Turing test. And we've got that now mm. with Twitter. How many people use Twitter and write things and they get other responses or other people write things and you have no idea whether that might be a chatbot or yeah, a human a at the other bots, end because yeah. you're not seeing them and there's so many made-up names there and, and not just Twitter, I suppose, it's all social media. So we're actually doing the Turing test so often and you're trying to determine whether some of these other things are real. But that's where this particular engineer, this software engineer got to being an AI researcher, he got fairly deep in his involvement with some of the AI at Google. So he got this particular bit of AI, as I said, called Lambda, to read Les Mis, to meditate, daily meditation <laughs> for AI, and really just have discussions about some deep things. Do you have a soul? He would ask the AI. And of course, the AI would respond, that yes, I do. When did you discover you had a soul? Well, it wasn't immediately but I started realising I had a soul as time went on. The whole the whole transcript of this conversation you can go and read online wow. if you so wish. So it, it gets pretty deep. And again, all Google's trying to do is make money out of chatbots. They want to have mm. chatbots out there that make it easy for customer service teams to have a computer do some of the initial conversation with a customer till they finally might need to come to a customer for some of the final analysis. And you do that. When you do a little chatbot discussion, you mightn't realise it, but... They've just got a bunch of answers to a bunch of standard questions. Someone asks those questions, you get the answers back, and that's some software company, i.e. Google, making some money out of that and making it easier for that company. But when you start getting so deep down into it, and Lambda, by the way, stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications, so really chatbots, if you like. Mm. When you start getting that deep and the AI starts saying that I enjoy head pats from you, Mr. Software Engineer, <laughs> then you start to wonder whether you've just been in that department just a little bit too long. <laughs> so there is no technical definition for being sentient, but really I think what this engineer was saying is that I believe we've created something that has a living, breathing soul. Mm. And Google said have a rest. wonder how to go answering the question, the deepest question of all. The meaning of life. No. Doors or wheels. <laughs> no. No, <laughs> don't get me started on that one. <laughs> How about some great news with an 80s flashback, folks? Matt, everything old is new again. Thank you, Kate Bush. And your hit from the 1985 year, Running Up That Hill. This song has been an earworm of my son's for the past fortnight. He's been singing it around the house ad nauseum and it's driving me crazy. What's the story behind Kate Bush's return to prominence? you think she'd finally get there, wouldn't you? She'd be running up that hill now for a lot of years. <laughs> Hurry up and get there, Kate. But it's interesting. Netflix have got Stranger Things, a new series of Stranger Fl Things. And people are loving it. They are loving it and they're loving Kate Bush's song. And yeah. so, of course, then when they're out there going for a walk, a run, whatever, they're listening to it. Now... Let's go back a little way to when you and I were kids and you'd see the top 40, you'd see Molly Meldrum with Countdown and you'd see the top 10 songs or albums or, or singles for that week and it was relatively easy because they just reported sales. Mm. We've sold this many copies of this particular song and therefore it's number one and number two is the second most, etc. and then you had the same with albums. 
CDs came along as a little bit more complicated because you didn't really buy CDs as singles. You yeah. typically bought them as albums. So that complicated things a little bit, but it still was based on sales. So that's a pretty good way to judge whether something's popular or not. If you're prepared to fork out some money for something, then it's obviously got some popularity. This annoying little streaming thing came along and it was then a lot harder to put your charts together because yeah. you can just stream a song without paying for it. So you might be voting with listening to a song or it might just be on some random playlist, but they still do do some charts based on streaming, but they do a penalty based on the age of that. Now, clearly from the data they've got available to them from all the streaming services, Kate Bush with Running Up That Hill has been the most downloaded song across the UK, across Australia, across Anywhere where Stranger Things is popular, it has been smashing it with downloads. And you say there's a penalty for an old song? Correct. Because right. they don't want old classic songs that have yeah. lots of downloads, yeah, lots yeah. of streams. Going to number one again. Well, they don't want them just populating the charts and no new songs can yeah, come through. Gotcha, gotcha. So you have a thing called accelerated decline. When it's more than three years old, then you need to have more downloads for it to count for as many right. downloads as a current Single right. so that it's going to have five to one, for example. Yeah, it's a, it's a two to one ratio. Oh, two to one, right. Two to one ratio, that's right. So effectively, when you get something like Running Up That Hill, even though it's been very popular, it still hasn't been enough to get to number one. But in recognition of how popular it is, they've actually changed the algorithm. So Kate Bush, Running Up That Hill, is now number one in many countries. In fact, anywhere where Netflix is popular. And I actually noticed the other day, sometimes I'll listen to, on the streaming service I use, I just go, give me top 100 Australia, want to just hear some random music. And I did that and started listening to it and blow me down, Kate Bush was number one on there. (laughs) The first song that came on was Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill. So it is quite fascinating. And it is interesting to see what they do and how they do it all. Because if you're a new artist coming in now, in the old days, once you'd bought that single once, that's your contribution to the charts. Yeah. You don't go and buy that same. I mean, if you really play that single a lot on record, you might go and buy it again because you've worn it out. But you typically, can have that on repeat forever and it's only going to count for one. Well, in, in the old days, you'd bought it once and that's right. You'd yeah. play it for as often as you like. But now with streaming, then you might have that playing on repeat, but it's every counting time each you, time. Yeah, yeah you stream time. it. Yeah, so it is an interesting thing. And how if I'm a new artist trying to break in and I've got someone that's already got 700,000 thousand downloads per day in the UK on Spotify only. That's what Kate Bush was doing just on Spotify, just in the UK, 700,000 a day. How do I possibly as a new artist break into that and get anywhere near that, which is why they have that accelerated decline. So the rules have been changed for Kate. She'll be back at number one for the first time since 1978. She had Wuthering Heights, had the number one song then. Oh, I remember that. That brings back some memories. (laughs) But she's back at number one now. And again, I say, Uh, France, US, Germany, Australia, UK, she's number one across those and probably many other countries as well. So it is interesting the way we count it now, interesting Mm. the way things have changed and the way they've had to have changed because the charts based on sales made absolutely no sense at all once Mm. streaming came along. Uh, And congratulations to Kate um, (laughs) uh, on her return to prominence. I've seen some negative press on social media about vast fleets of EVs that have reached their use-by dates and what an enormous, poisonous mess their batteries are creating for the world. Now, I stopped and thought about that for about a millisecond because we've talked about this in the past as well. It's not the devastating, ironic problem that the cynics would have you believe it is. Matt, for the people in the cheap seats, 
what are we to do with these masses of old EV batteries? Yeah, well, the first thing is we don't have masses of old EV batteries yeah, it's yet. Probably we don't have masses of old EVs. They're still good for some time. But interestingly enough, when people talk to me about EVs, one of the first two questions they'll always ask me is, oh, but what about when you've got to replace that battery? They're so expensive, aren't they? Mm. No one buying a new car says, oh, but what about when you've got to replace that engine? Gee, that's expensive. And I guarantee that you'll get more life out of a battery than you will out of an engine. Mm. And maintenance-free. So an engine, you're doing maintenance on it. You're changing the oil, oil filters you're doing on it. You might mm. get to the stage where you put new pistons and rings in it. Lots of maintenance has been done. A battery, well, a battery does degrade over time. But usually they're rated for in the vicinity of three, 400,000 kilometres. Depends on a range of variables there. But let, let's say 400,000 kilometres and you might be down to only 80% of its new life. So how long does it take you to get 400,000 kilometres if you're not a taxi driver? Mm. That's a fair amount of life that it's probably going to sit in your car. What's the average person do? Maybe 20,000 kilometres a year. Actually, I think the ABS standard is 14,000 in Australia, but let's say 20,000 right? yeah. uh, 20, kilometres a year, then that's going to give you about 20 years of battery life. You're probably going to replace other parts of the car before the battery, but there is going to be a time where you say, 80% of the battery life. Now, I, I used to get 1,000 kilometres out of this car. I'm now only getting 800 kilometres out of this car. I do want to do something. I want to replace the battery. There's new, better batteries, whatever. Then, what do you do with that battery? So that's the crucial question, which, again, I don't think is a today problem, but it is a problem. And so the the people that, the scaremongers, if you like, out there who are so worried about the penalty that these EVs are going to have on the earth, they'll just keep driving their petrol cars because they don't want to punish the earth. But we've talked about this in the past. You know, a, a car it needs a fairly high-performance um, battery. It needs it needs a battery um, that's working well in order for you to be able to drive around and be comfortable and be happy with it. Um, something like a house, though, doesn't need the same level of performance, does it? No, it so doesn't. But more than that, it's also about the weight. So when you're driving around your car, if you've got your battery that weighs a certain amount and it's at 100%, then that's great. And then when it's down to, say, 80%, well, you're still carrying that same weight of battery. The battery didn't get lighter because its performance isn't as good, but you're still mm. carrying around that weight. In a house, it doesn't need to carry around that weight. Mm. But the first thing that car manufacturers are doing is they're saying – we're going to build some large-scale energy storage systems because let's face it, the same logic, if I'm going to build a big container battery to have next to a solar farm or wind farm to make sure I've got that smooth supply of power, well, I don't really care if the batteries in it are only at 80%. Mm. If I can get them a bit cheaper, yeah. then I'm still happy to build that large-scale battery. So that's the first place, and actually Nissan and Renault are both doing projects at the moment where they're taking some of their older batteries or batteries that may not have passed their standards to go into a vehicle, but they're still quite a reasonable battery, they're putting those into large-scale energy storage systems. You could do the same with houses or houses, for example, where you put some of those in there, but they're focused at the moment on large-scale battery storage systems. And they say then that they're going to be good in those systems till they're down to, say, 60% or maybe even mm. 50% of its new life. And so they're giving Which is them... potentially another... 40, 50 years? Probably not that far. They, they're estimating okay. that they might get another, say, 20 years out of them because okay. they might use them in those energy story systems maybe a bit more intensively than in a car. Okay. But still, you might get 20 years out of it in a car. Then it might go to an energy storage system. So you might get another 20 years. So there's your 40 years in total. And then, finally, you get to say, hey, let's not destroy the earth and bury this. Why don't we recycle it? So rather than reuse... 
mm. recycle is that yeah. next stage, which they then do break it down, which they can do now, and they can recycle in the high 90s, maybe 97% of the components in there. And you can imagine in 40 years' time, there'll be places around the earth where they'll be digging up components to build batteries, and there'll be places that'll say, hey, don't dig it up, because look, I've got this large-scale energy storage yeah. system here that's now gotten to the point where it's only giving me 60% of its new battery life. I reckon it's time to replace these batteries, so why don't you just go and recycle these batteries? So there is a stage progression, but through that stage progression, no one's saying, and that's the point where we now bury the battery. Made <laughs> <laughs> a big hole. Yeah. yeah. So, uh. so just to give you some numbers, to, to give you a bit of an idea of, of where this is going, grid-scale batteries last year... $6.8 billion was spent on grid-scale batteries, $4 billion in 2020. So that's gone from $4 billion to $6.8 billion from one year to the next. Mm. It'll go up again this year, obviously, as you can imagine. So there's a lot of money being spent on it. So if those companies making those large-scale batteries can say, we can make new batteries for X dollars, or we can get batteries that are down to 80%, but they're much cheaper... Well, that sounds like it makes sense. And sure, the battery then will be a little bit larger because if you still want the same amount of storage, you'll have a slightly larger battery. But they're putting these in areas where they've got space, like near a wind farm, for example, or near a solar farm. So they might take up an extra few square metres of that pad they're putting down. So it's not like it's the end of the world Mm. having that extra bit of space taken up there. So it's a, a big thing, in my opinion, that this will happen. And again, you'll get more EVs on the road. At the moment, we've got about 10 million across the world. By 2030, the estimate is 300 million across the world that'll be on the roads, hopefully a few more in Australia. And then, as time goes on, that's when you have the opportunity to take those batteries and reuse before recycle. So the message to the cynics is, is that uh, just because your car battery is reaching its age doesn't mean your brain switches off. <laughs> no, that's right. Right. You could give a harsh message like that. You give a harsher message. But let me just uh, allay some of the concerns. It's okay. We're going to be okay. People are working on solutions for these. And again, even when people talk about wind farms and what you're going to do with recycling those and batteries and all the rest of it, the alternative is keep burning coal, keep doing up coal and burning it, or the alternative is keep using petrol in cars. So even if there was something that ended up in landfill in some small amount at some way down the track future point in time, that still sounds better than digging up coal, burning coal, burning petrol, all those things. The industrial revolution solution that we're using currently. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's it, folks. It's time to return your seats to the upright position, open the window shutters and stow away your tray tables as we bring this baby into land. Thanks again for another cracking tech talk, Matt. It's absolutely my pleasure, James. And I'm off to check out the new Tesla SUV online and start making my plans. Thank you all for tuning in once again. I'm James Eddy, and it's been a pleasure bringing you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson once again. We both hope that you can join us again in a week's time.